What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, we'll talk about how Joe Biden can end our forever wars, starting with Afghanistan. Karen Greenberg will outline three key steps that should be taken and can be taken. But first, there's one political prediction that always comes true. Record turnout in one election will be followed by a tidal wave of voter suppression efforts before the next one. So it's not really surprising that after 2020 had record turnout, 2021 is seeing voting rights under attack nationwide by Republican-controlled state legislatures. They're passing laws to make it harder to vote, especially for black people, the elderly, students, and people with disabilities. This includes cuts to early voting, new voter ID laws, purges of the voter rolls. Georgia, of course, has taken the lead, and Georgia is being challenged in court by the ACLU along with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the LDF, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. For comment, we turn to Dale Ho. He's director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, Uh, He supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation nationwide. Dale has argued two cases before the Supreme Court, one with the great name Trump versus New York, challenging the exclusion of undocumented immigrants from the population count used to apportion the House of Representatives. The other Supreme Court argument of his was for the case that successfully blocked adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census. That story was featured in the award-winning documentary film, The Fight. Dale Ho, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, John. The Georgia law does many things. It makes it illegal for Georgia voting officials to send vote-by-mail applications to each voter, makes it harder to get mail ballots, it eliminates most drop boxes uh, for ballots, makes it harder for working people to vote by reducing the hours that polls are open. Uh, The Wall Street Journal says the law will cause much longer and slower lines at the polls, 
and I'm quoting here, which will mean large numbers of working class, elderly, and sick voters will just give up and go home, close quote. Which parts of the Georgia law do you think are the most likely to reduce voting? I think the parts of the law that are most likely to have an, an immediate, a most immediate and direct effect on voting are the limitations on voting by mail, the restrictions on sending applications to voters, the window in which voters can request them, and then the restrictions on how voters can return those ballots, uh, the limitations on drop boxes, making them not 24 hours a day, but placing them inside of buildings only available during ordinary business hours and only during the early voting period, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a drop box. Now, states that have no excuse absentee voting tend to have higher turnout than states that don't, about two percentage points or so in most elections, um, or even more. this bill does not eliminate no excuse absentee voting. That's a good thing. That's one of the um, things that the Georgia legislature was talking about doing at the start of this process and would have been devastating. But what they're doing instead is sort of a death by a thousand cuts. Um, These various restrictions, which by themselves individually, each do not seem maybe that pernicious, but when you add them all up, could have some significant effect. And what do you think are the most offensive or outrageous parts of the Georgia law? I think that's an easy one. The most outrageous part of the law is the ban on giving people waiting in line to vote water or food. I mean, Georgia is a state that had lines that were in some places in Metro Atlanta, you know, five hours long during the primary in 2020. You know, it's one thing to say that Voters should have a clear path. They shouldn't, you know, have anyone around the polling place when they're trying to get in and out to vote. But, you know, if, if the voting experience were something that was something that took five or 10 minutes, maybe that might be right. But when Georgia can't even administer its elections in such a way where voters can get in and out quickly, but instead have to wait hours sometimes, the idea that we're going to make it a crime for people to try to make that experience just a little bit easier for voters, giving out water. I mean, you literally can't give a bottle of water while you're waiting in line to the person who's behind you. Mm. Um, You risk criminal jeopardy if you do that. And Michael Luddig, a former Court of Appeals judge, very conservative, was frequently mentioned during the Bush years as a potential Supreme Court nominee. He wrote that he thinks that there's not a single court in the country that would uphold that ban. Um, And I hope that Judge Lettig is correct. So we've talked about the parts of the law that are most likely to reduce voting, the most offensive parts. Just taking a step back, the big picture of what Georgia has done here, what, what else do we need to know about this? I think the most pernicious part of this law, potentially, is the provision that allows the state legislature to exert kind of unprecedented control over local elections administration. That's a problem for a couple of reasons. One, you saw a lot of state and local elections administrators last year facing the pandemic, doing their best to try to accommodate voters to make voting easier. And now the legislature essentially has a veto over efforts like that in the future. But second, and this is where I get even more concerned, you saw efforts after the 2020 presidential election to convince legislatures or other political actors to step in and essentially overturn the results of the elections. And that thankfully didn't happen. We still have 
a democracy here. Um, but this looks like something that could be an opening salvo, a step towards um, the legislature exerting that kind of muscle in a fundamentally anti-democratic way. And it, this is a change that's flying a little bit below the radar because it doesn't have an immediate impact on people's voting opportunities. In the long run, it may prove to be the most consequential aspect of this law. Let's talk about the the litigation, the ACLU lawsuit filed with the LDF and the SPLC argues that the Georgia bill violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and infringes on Georgians' rights under the 1st, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Remind us about Section 2 and how well, the relevance of that here. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is a nationwide federal ban on any voting law practice or procedure that has a discriminatory result, essentially that disproportionately burdens voters of color in a way that reinforces existing forms of discrimination and inequalities. Here in Georgia, you know, the legislature didn't have a problem expanding voting by mail for decades or letting elections administrators do so. It was only in 2020 after the percentage of voters of color and black voters in particular who rely on voting by mail skyrocketed that the legislature took these actions to curtail voting by mail. And we think that will have a discriminatory effect, potentially in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. We also think it violates the 14th and 15th Amendments because it seems so plainly motivated by an effort to restrict the political participation and power of Black voters. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Georgia has no excuse absentee voting. It's you know, historically made voting by mail easier. But that that trend turned on a dime once black voters used voting by mail at the extremely high rates that they did in the 2020 presidential election. And I think that timing certainly should raise a lot of suspicion about the motives of the legislature here. We've talked here also about the, the 14th Amendment, equal protection, and the 15th Amendment, which is where the words right to vote were added to the Constitution only after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period. You also argue that the First Amendment is violated here, freedom of speech and assembly. How, what's that argument? That's right. And that is an argument that we make specifically with respect to the ban on handing out food and water to voters in line. You know, when people do that, they're not just doing it as an act of charity, although it certainly is that in part. They're doing that because they want to express their own views about the importance of participation, the importance of overcoming these barriers, staying in line, exercising your fundamental right to vote. That's a form of expression, handing out that water, giving that encouragement. And um, by banning that, and not just banning it or discouraging it, but making it a crime. Georgia is criminalizing expressive activity to encourage voting, to stay in line. Um, and we think that violates the First Amendment rights of our clients. So, of course, we worry that Republicans dominate too many of the courts now and may reject these challenges. What do what you and the ACLU think about that? The federal judiciary has certainly become uh, a different place over the last four years. Uh, President Trump nominated uh, a very large number of judges to the intermediate courts of appeals in particular, uh, more than Barack Obama did over an eight year period. And it just means that 
our job is likely to be a little bit harder. Now, I don't want to prejudge anyone. Um, we've had success and won cases in front of judges appointed by presidents of both parties, including judges appointed by President Trump. But I think any fair observer would look at the courts and say they are different today than they were four years ago. And that makes our jobs that much harder. In addition to this litigation, challenging the new obstacles to voting, we, of course, want to make it easier for Americans to vote. And there's a lot of states that are trying to do that now. What do you think is the most important reform that we could pass that would make it easier to vote? I think the single most important reform for encouraging voting and boosting turnout is election day registration. Um, about hmm. 20 states in the District of Columbia permit eligible voters to register to vote and cast a ballot in one trip to a polling location or an early voting site um, and on election day itself. And the evidence shows that that reform, more than any other, is associated with higher turnout. And what, what I think is interesting is a lot of states that you might describe as on the conservative or red end of the political spectrum, um, states like Utah, you know, some purple-ish states like Iowa, um, Wisconsin, you have a broad range of states that have a long history using election day registration. Um, and, you know, the only question I have is if it's good enough for the voters in those states, why isn't it good enough for everyone in America? Any uh, closing thoughts on where we stand today on voting rights in America? I think where you started today, John, is very, very apt. The story of voting rights in this country isn't a story of simple linear progress where the franchise gets expanded in concentric circles until we reach universal suffrage. Every fight for voting rights has been met by reactionary forces that have pushed back and tried to take us in the opposite direction. Gains are always contested and progress is not inevitable. And where we are today is just the latest chapter, I think, in the American story of democracy, uh, where record participation, almost 160 million people voting, is now being met with a wave of suppression efforts. And we'll just keep fighting. Dale Ho is director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. He supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation nationwide. Thank you, Dale. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about America's Forever Wars, part of our global war on terror, and how we can end them, especially Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. You may recall the United States invaded Afghanistan after September 11th. That was 2001, almost 20 years ago. According to the official figures, we've spent about $800 billion fighting the war and an additional $40 billion in aid to Afghanistan. The unofficial figure from the cost of the war project is about $2 trillion. U.S. forces have suffered more than 2,300 deaths and more than 20,000 American soldiers have been injured in action. And we've killed, we are told, more than 100,000 Afghan civilians since they started counting in 2009. 
Then Trump signed a peace treaty with the Taliban under which the United States will pull its last troops out of Afghanistan May 1st. That's in a couple of weeks. Does anybody think that's going to happen? November has now been floated by the Biden administration as a more, quote, reasonable figure. It all seems at best confusing and pretty hopeless. For some hope, we turn to Karen Greenberg. She is suggesting three concrete steps, not just to end the war in Afghanistan, but to begin to end the war on terror. Karen is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and most recently, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. She writes for The Nation in Tom Dispatch. Karen Greenberg, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, we're not the only ones who want to end the global war on terror. Joe Biden has declared that's one of his goals. That's big. Please explain. Yeah, I think that that Joe Biden, President Biden, has given all the right cues about coming to the end of this period in American history. He's made it very clear, and his the State Department has made it clear, and even some of the decisions that have been made in DOD, Department of Defense, have made it clear they would like to turn their attention elsewhere and begin to think about how they're deploying resources, where, why, and, and what for. And therefore, the war on terror, in the wake of some serious great power rivalries, needs to be pulled back. And what I say is, whatever the reason, this would be a good thing to have at the top of an agenda. Um, And so whether it's uh, President Biden or um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, there really does seem to be some goodwill energy towards wanting to take some concrete steps towards ending this war. Whether or not we can get there, that's another story. So concrete steps to eliminate the foundations of the war on terror. You say three things should be changed and most important can be changed. What's number one on your list? Well, that's a hard one. But number one on my list is um, is um, repealing the 2001 authorization for the use of military force that was drafted and passed right after the attacks of 9-11 without any kind of geographical restrictions, without any kind of time limits, without even naming an enemy. And as a result, and it has been used in increasingly expansive ways to this very day, and this needs to be um, repealed. They're talking about reforming it. I'm not sure exactly what that means. And then, of course, there's another authorization for the use of military force that was passed for the Iraq War in 2002 for the invasion in 2003. That, too, uh, should be repealed. And that looks like the first one that will be repealed. It's the, it's the easier one, what Saddam Hussein was deposed a long time ago. The United States has been working within Iraq to help build up civil society for all of these years. Um, It should have been repealed a long time ago. So that's the lower hanging fruit. And it looks like that will happen first. You know, back in 2001, you remind us at Tom Dispatch and, and in the nation, there was only one person who voted against the authorization of the use of force. Remind us of who that heroic... Barbara Lee from your uh, state of California, absolutely. And has she has continued to this day to um, fight the fight to repeal the, the 2001 AUMFs and the AUMFs authorities um, over and over again. And, you know, hasn't been able to bring that about, but she's been on record. We need to not have and ever expansive powers. It's what she saw would happen at the beginning and it's what has happened. 
So eliminate the legal basis for unlimited war powers granted to the president. That's number one. Seems like a good number one. What's number two on your list? So number two on my list kind of intersects with that one, which has to do with restrain, refine, rethink, rethink the law and policy around the use of drones um, and drone strikes as targeted killings. You know, um, this was a policy that was embraced by the Obama administration, in part on the rationale that it saved lives. It certainly saved American lives because it came, you know, they were launched from so far away and then it, it reduced the need for troops on the grounds in these strikes. Also on the grounds that it um, saved uh, enemy lives and, and civilian uh, casualties. And Obama did reduce civilian casualties, um, but still this is a very um, dangerous tool to have. It's proliferated around the world. And we need to really think about how we're gonna do this, not in secret, in open, what are the rules and regulations? And we still don't have them. And by the way, I wanna say that Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor has said in the early days of his uh, appointment that he very much thinks that restraining, rethinking, the, the use of drones is important. And I think that's, that's at least a beginning, a good intention. Your argument is not that drone warfare should be eliminated, but rather that it should become a rarity. That's kind of a tricky line to draw. Listen, in, a, in the best of all possible worlds, I would like there to be, you know, world peace. I really would. And I <laughs> cannot believe the escalation to war that, that has happened in this century. And it is just, it's a given that we have wars simmering or, or actively hostile in too many places. If I thought it was a reality that we could get rid of drone warfare, that would be great. But I think, you know, we're, li we're not living in, in that world right now, but we may get there someday. And one of the limits that you want to put on this is transparency in reporting on the uses of drone warfare and on the casualties. Absolutely. And what's interesting, this is so interesting, you know, I've been writing some things recently and trying to uh, double check, you know, the footnotes on fact checks of did Trump escalate uh, drone warfare and in what countries and what were the casualties and what were the costs and the, the, the amount of difference in the statistics, depending on whether you whose statistics you use. And what governments are counting? Are they counting what the Department of Defense says? Are they department counting what human rights groups say? Are they counting what people on the ground say? There's no mechanism for knowing. We need to have a structure that says, this is how we're going to count it. This is how we're going to, what we're going to rely on. This is what matters, et cetera, et cetera. We don't even have that. Talk about transparency and how we make the determination about how to use a, a, a targeted strike, which is also extremely important. And what's... Number three on your list. Oh, the, my number three is really my number one all the time, <laughs> which is close Guantanamo Bay detention facility and do it quickly and quietly and just get it done. Didn't Obama pledge to close Gitmo 12 years ago and he said he was going to do it within a year? Yes. When we were young, Obama <laughs> said that he would close it within a year. He got outmatched politically very quickly. And look, he reduced the numbers of people at detainees at Guantanamo to 41. Now there are 40 there. That is an accomplishment, but it is in no way closing the facility. And just remember that Donald Trump, when he was president, talked about opening it up for some more bad dudes. Remember? So yeah. among the many reasons that Guantanamo needs to be closed and put into the history basket is that it's there to be used if anybody wants to use it. That's not okay. We don't need an offshore uh, detention facility that has its own laws, its own rules, its own regulations, and in which people can be detained forever. 
without sufficient due process. So, um, I mean, this is this is not rocket science and they need to close it. It's 40 individuals. Obama had a very aggressive uh, program at the end of the last 18 months of his pre presidency for getting detainees re resettled, transferred to other countries because they can't come here by congressional authority. And uh, this needs to happen. The, 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 those forever detainees, for the most part, need to be transferred and the rest need to be tried. And we need to return to being a uh, country that abides by law and policy. It's clear. Obama was defeated when he tried to do this. Are the politics any different today? I think they are. I think the distance of time, I think, makes a difference. I think the, the, the numbers make a difference. I think the fact that $13 million per prisoner is a very high price tag that the public can begin to absorb. I think the idea of danger of people who, who we're talking about building old age facilities for and, and new medical facilities for in Guantanamo is another reason. There are a lot of rational reasons for not seeing this as in the kind of fear-minded approach that was before. And I think an argument, a very persuasive argument could be made to Republicans and Democrats for closing it. Now, part of your proposal is not just these three top priorities, but something you call six-month checkbacks. Tell us about that part. You know, I think that the the Biden administration should be given a chance to do the things that they've given indication they want to do, which is to um, narrow their author the authority of the president to just strike where he wants in the name of terror, to refine any kind of uses of war and be very, very careful and limited about how they use them and to close Guantanamo. And there's been a lot of, why haven't we done it yet? Remember that the, um, that the transition period was very choppy and they didn't get the transition that they should have had and that they are mandated to have. And so I think they should be given a little time. I think six months is a very short window. It's not three years. Biden has given himself to close Guantanamo, he has said, by the end of his term. I think there's some confidence that he might be able to do it before then. But I, I just say we should have a little check back and then we can get, then we could say, where's the progress? Where's the change? Why hasn't it happened? But there needs to be a little window here. I want to end up on Afghanistan. I notice your approach is you do not start with what's the right timetable for getting out of Afghanistan or what should be the terms for the negotiations with the Taliban about future shared governance. You start from the big picture. But where does Afghanistan today fit into this big picture? And, you know, the big thing for so many of us is those schools for girls in Afghanistan that the Taliban will almost certainly shut down as soon as they can. What about them? You know, I think there's going to be a lot of gradation in the negotiations with Afghanistan. I don't think it's just one thing or, or another. Um, I think this is going to be true of our foreign policy going forward with Biden across the board, whether it's Iran or China or what it is. We've gotten used to thinking of foreign policy as a one-liner. It's not. And I don't think that you have to sacrifice everything. And I think when they talk about back-channel negotiations, it's also incremental negotiations. What's at stake? What do we need? And, and we're going to have to pressure and hope 
um, that the Biden administration, some combination of pressure and hope, that the Biden administration is going to ask for those issues related to rights and liberties that can move Afghanistan forward in the world. And this is why he's being very careful to say, I'm not sure when. He still hasn't said it's not going to be May 1st. He has not said it. Um, it's getting very close to think that they could actually physically accomplish it by May uh, 1st. But the pressure for that date is still in the air as these back channel negotiations go on. And I, I think that's a good thing. It should stay there. Karen Greenberg, she wrote about how Biden can end our forever wars for Tom Dispatch and the nation. Karen, thanks for talking with us today. Great to have you on the show. Absolute pleasure, John. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.